Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Episode 10, Paul Against the Demons. This week, we're getting into the history of Christianity and its connection to demonology by engaging with some New Testament sources. The New Testament is just a way of saying the Christian Bible, and it reflects the theological ideas of the people who compiled and wrote it, that it is the sort of new revelation or dispensation uh, from God in contrast to what they would call the Old Testament, what I'll call the Hebrew Bible. The oldest sources we have from the New Testament are the letters of St. Paul. This might seem a little odd. Why not stories about Jesus from the Gospels? Isn't he the star of the show? Well, those Gospels were collected and edited decades after Jesus' death, and the earliest ones were appearing right at the end of St. Paul's life. And it seems pretty clear that he didn't have any access to those. What he had instead was an oral tradition about Jesus Christ. Paul wasn't initially involved in Jesus's ministry. He doesn't appear in any of those gospel narratives of the original disciples. And with the exception of a supernatural visitation or two, their lives ran on parallel tracks. Like Jesus, Paul was born most likely in the first decade of the Common Era. And his origins as a powerful figure in the development of the church run something like this. Paul was a Pharisee and continued to be a Pharisee, which is another way of saying that he was a Jew who was devoted to the oral traditions of Judaism as well as the written Torah text. Paul represents the the oldest source of a Pharisee writer that we have. Like the majority of Jews uh, in late ancient Palestine, Paul was suspicious initially of the new movement that was growing up around Jesus of Nazareth. And he was so suspicious as to be a persecutor of those early adherents to Jesus's gospel. This all changed, you know, that is the, the sort of parallel tracks of Jesus's life and Paul's life run into each other finally. That happens famously in the Acts of the Apostles on the road to Damascus, where Paul experiences the risen, glorified Christ who confronts him about his persecution of these gospel adherers. And from that moment on, Paul switches from being the most zealous of the persecutors of the early Christian movement to one of its most impassioned adherents. What's important to note is that this does not signal a conversion in the sense we think of it today. Paul doesn't switch religions. He doesn't become a Christian after being a Jew. He simply sees himself taking a new path in Judaism. Let's talk a little bit about how Paul operated in his missions to spread the gospel. He moved from city to city in the Eastern Mediterranean, planting house churches. The communities were were very small in the beginning. And he was self-consciously styled as the apostle to the Gentiles, keeping a deliberate distance from the church at Jerusalem, which was founded by the first disciples. Paul didn't try to recruit adherence to his new apocalyptic version of Judaism by going for the elites. Instead, he worked as a manual laborer. Now, it's pretty unlikely that Paul was from the lower classes himself. His Greek shows that he had a level of rhetorical training, which suggests that he probably wasn't at the top of the elite class, but then again, only 10% of the folks in the Roman Empire were literate at all. And that's, you know, the Roman Empire's setting for our story here. He also seems to have had a lot of the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible set to memory, the Septuagint. And it's likely that Greek was his first language. So Paul makes all this effort to blend into the lower classes of these port cities along the Eastern Mediterranean. Sometimes it's assumed he was a leather worker. And there's like a chameleon or protean quality about Paul. He's, as he put it, all things to all people. 
His daily work is a way of supporting himself, but it's also a key resource for recruiting Gentile workers who seem drawn to Judaism. And this is key. Paul really sees these people who might be interested in Judaism as As he builds up a following, Paul organizes house churches. And it seems like a really essential practice for these church services was the Eucharist, what we might think of as communion, the Lord's Supper, or as one scholar suggests rendering it, the boss's dinner. The original practice of the Eucharist was an agape, a word for a love feast, an actual meal you would sit down to with other people in this community. And it was a meal being held in the boss's honor, according to his instructions, as relayed by Paul. After Paul would establish these churches in places like Thessalonica or Ephesus or Corinth, he would keep moving. He was, it seems to me, that the restless type, the, the rambling man. And I want to take a moment to sort of talk about the key messages that he imparted to these churches and that he saw as central to the gospel or the good news he was sharing with them. So something that's operating in the background and sometimes in the foreground is a really strict sexual ethic that advocates avoiding lust, especially in promiscuous or what Paul sees as unnatural situations, but even in marriage. And there's a linkage between lust and idolatry that's really clearly linked to uh, prophetic discourses in the Hebrew Bible. And so this seems like this sexual ethic that's important to Paul is something that may have been continuous with his Pharisee ethics from his time before encountering Christ. The basic message of Paul's gospel was that the God of Israel is the only true God, Jesus was the son of that God, and this God was angry with the world for all of its sins, its idolatry, and sex that Paul was worried about, etc. And so Jesus had been crucified and raised from the dead by God, and Jesus was coming again to rescue those who were loyal to him and to establish a new kingdom. And I think this last part about the new kingdom, this glorious new kingdom, is a real focal point and a selling point for his early missionary efforts. The loyal adherence to the gospel would share in this glory of a new kingdom. So we sort of see like a massive role reversal if the people that Paul is mostly missionizing are people who are from the bottom rungs of society, who are not really in a position to be running the Roman Empire in, in, in a sort of command function or people who are not gloriously rich or famous. The idea of Paul's message is that with the coming of this new kingdom, with the, the parousia of Christ, the, the, sort of the, the second coming, that these people would, would share in the glory and the sense of glory of, of being materially well off, of being notable and, and well respected. This all kind of gets bundled into Paul's presentation of what the second coming means. And he he tells his listeners and in, in, in Thessalonians, for example, that we don't know exactly when this is going to happen, but we, we have to be completely ready at any time. It's, it's there's sort of this urgent expectation that this parousia or this the second coming of this new kingdom is, is at hand at any moment. He will also go on to explain that this this kingdom come, this this new kingdom is not just any kingdom, but a redeemed Israel. And let's keep in mind that he is trying to sell Gentiles on this. And Gentiles, as I mentioned before, who may have been inclined to adapting Judaism. The point is that the Gentiles that Paul converted are no longer Gentiles, at least in his mind, but have been adapted into an eschatological cosmic Israel. And what I mean by eschatological, it's like, this Israel that's going to arrive at the end of this present age. Paul, a sort of apocalyptic Jewish thinker, sees the world divided up into specific ages, and he's at the cusp or the end of one age transitioning into another. Once the appointed number of Gentile converts has been reached, the rest of Israel, most of whom are not particularly receptive to the gospel that 
Paul represents or the message of Jesus. Paul imagines that at the, once this number is reached, the rest of Israel will be brought into the fold. So we sort of have this sense of Israel expanded to encompass the nations of the world. In his letter to the Romans, a sort of a really mature statement of his theology, Paul makes this point to support Jewish Christians who are active in the churches in Rome, who are being marginalized by Gentile Christians. Paul argued that Israel is first in God's plan. This was the first chosen people. And it is the Gentiles who are the wild shoot being grafted onto that olive tree, which is Israel. So trying to at once minister to Gentiles in the Roman Empire, while also keeping Israel and its place in God's cosmic plan central to his message. And it's interesting that Paul takes great pains to do this because in other parts of his his corpus, and, and especially in Galatians, he has his own moments when he seems to be marginalizing Judaism and really venting his fury at Jewish law. Um, and so when followers of the gospel in Galatia become convinced that they need to practice Jewish law, Paul reacts that if they think that, then Christ died in vain, that the law was there before Christ died, so what was the point? The law for Paul sort of great source of rhymes there. Uh, the law was given by God so that sin would increase. In other words, the law that God gives is there as a way of multiplying human transgressions. And that kind of makes the divine bailout in the person of Jesus all the more gracious. It elevates God's glory and power. Paul also wants to maintain that the law is holy, even if it has this sort of sinister purpose of sparking more sin and more transgression, it isn't sin itself. It's a way of almost, it's almost like a detergent. It kind of brings all of the grease or the sin out up to the surface. It gives knowledge of sin. It's something that allows us to understand the problems that we're dealing with for Paul. And because those who are adherents to the gospel are living in the person of Christ, they're no longer vulnerable to sin. And so they're actually finally in the position to fulfill the law as it was intended. Paul is said to have died in the city of Rome in the late 60s, martyred during a purge brought on by Emperor Nero. According to some rather Christianized legends, Nero was scapegoating early Christians for the great fire of Rome. Paul's violent end is encoded in his iconography as he is holding not only a scroll, but also a sword. The sword stands for the manner of his death, which was a beheading. In fact, Paul's reputation in the early church was primarily based on his status as a martyr. Paul's legendary martyrdom at the hands of a tyrannical emperor serves as a good transition to discussing the role of demons and the devil in his thought world. Paul seems to refer to the devil in his letters as the god of this age or the god of this world. And this vision of the devil also applies to political figures like Nero because emperors and other secular rulers are as powerful and capricious as gods. And yet, Paul suggests, their time is coming to an end. reading Paul is that he was a man on a mission. The end of the world was coming in his lifetime, and his job was to spread the good news, or the gospel, of Jesus Christ and his resurrection, the ultimate triumph over sin and death, to all the nations before the whole world came crashing down. This we might characterize as the apocalyptic worldview, one with a lot of currency in 2020, that's also the current scholarly fave for how to contextualize Paul's pretty weird letters that make up a good chunk of the New Testament and that articulated the earliest documentary basis for this whole religion called Christianity. 
The way to understand Paul, so the story goes, is to always remember that he thinks the world is ending. Derek Brown has taken this apocalyptic lens as the basis for explaining one of the more nebulous parts of the Pauline corpus, his view of Satan and his demonology more broadly. It hinges, ultimately, on Paul's notion of time. Rather than a fully binary system, think the before times and the COVID times, for example, Paul has a modified binary. Paul has a modified binary. The before times, and then the end of the world times, you know, resurrection of the dead, final judgment, etc. And in between, he adds this weird moment that is the time in which Paul himself lived. It's characterized by Christ's resurrection and proleptic defeat of all the bad guys. By proleptic here, I mean something treated as if it's already accomplished. But this weird in-between time for Paul was still before the eschaton or the end of days when the final triumph will occur in some sort of judgment day, everlasting life scenario. Paul's mission is to seize this weird in-between moment to get everyone ready for the end of days by winning them over to Christ. Brown argues that Satan, in the handful of places where he gets name-checked in Paul's letters to the churches, functions primarily as Paul's opponent in his mission. Satan picks on Paul because Paul is out to save the world for Jesus. How does Satan work? He messes things up in a few ways. He creates dissension among the troops, for example, tempting the Corinthians to embrace celibacy, which is in fact Paul's favored marital or sexual status, when they aren't strong enough to do so and should just get married rather than risk sexual immorality. He is the god of this world, as in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He is tied to the so-called false apostles or pseudo-apostles, that is, those who don't preach Paul's Jesus, Paul's gospel, etc. See 2 Corinthians 11. And all of these ways of Satan accomplishing his work for Brown are about thwarting Paul's mission, which might render all of Paul's labor in vain. Okay, so that's one take on how to read these references to Satan in Paul's letters. He's sort of this bad guy who specifically targets Paul because Paul is so important to salvation history. Paul is the one who's going to save the world, so the devil picks on him especially. Satan doesn't exist in Paul's letters in a conceptual vacuum, though. There's a whole wealth of related entities, some human, some divine, that include demons, not to be confused with bad angels. Those are separate for Paul. Human rulers, like those who crucified Jesus, and these allegorical figures, personifications of flesh, sin, and death. They aren't presented as any kind of hierarchy or taxonomy, probably because Paul's letters are occasional, meaning they were written for particular people at particular times, rather than a systematic treatment of his beliefs. But it's clear that all these entities are all involved, and that they each appear to be working against Paul in various ways. conceptual distinctions we deal with a lot on this show may seem really basic, but it's actually significant. And that's the distinction between the devil and demons. You've been telling us about how Satan fits into Paul's apocalyptic worldview, but does he really have a lot to say about demons or like fallen angels or things of that nature? Well, You know, it's something we've actually referenced before when discussing womanist engagements with the demonic. Ebony Marshall Terman, for example, references a phrase that appears in Pauline literature, powers and principalities, when discussing Dolores Williams' idea of demonarchy, misogyny, and white supremacy. Powers and principalities. It seems like pretty mysterious, but also evocative when paired with the subject of demonology. So, like, who has the power and what kind of political unity are these principalities? 
Well, to get started on that, it might help to hear the passage that it comes from with all of its original flavor. So let's just go full King James for a second. Okay, so finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Man, Paul wrote that? That sounds intense with all those yees and principalities and stuff. I know, it's it's really great, but sadly he probably didn't write it. It's from Ephesians, which is an example of pseudepigrapha, though probably an early example of it. But it does seem to jive with things that the authentic Pauline letters allude to. For example, the idea that certain evil cosmic powers are dominating the world but that their time has come. Notice this idea of present darkness that appeared in the text. We see this dynamic in legit letters, like 1 Corinthians, where Paul writes, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have died. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Okay, so like we get, we're getting this sense that this cosmic power or powers has some kind of claim upon the world, like it legitimately rules it, but also that these powers are allied against God. Maybe they're sort of rebellious. And God has a plan to take care of that, to wipe them all out. And naturally, Jesus, from Paul's point of view, is at the center of that plan. So in a work of Pauline pseudoepigrapha, um, Colossians, the person writing as Paul claims that while Christ created the powers and principalities, he's also going to defeat them through the crucifixion and resurrection. Wait, how is that supposed to work? Like, killing me is the best you can do, but I keep coming back? <laughs> I think that's right. I, f I find it a, a little delightfully confusing how Christ at once creates the powers and principalities and then like beats the shit out of them. Um, mm. And this anticipates something we'll talk about later, but it's as if the powers and principalities are like these middle managers who are running amok. And that's like applied to both human powers and principalities and maybe also like the supernatural variety. They sort of get, they sort of get mixed up a little bit in Paul, like whether he's talking about political power, the governing authorities, but also like maybe these angelic elemental beings. Okay, good. Let's keep that in mind because that's definitely going to come up in some of the scholarly writers that we're going to be looking at today. It's rebellion and disorder that moved kings and these quasi-demonic spirits into the enemy column. And it's interesting how enemies is in the plural here. It's not just Satan who needs to be crushed under every heel, though Paul does assure his readers that Satan will be brought down in his way. This is true. And the odd thing is that Paul doesn't seem particularly concerned with delineating the chain of command when it comes to these enemy powers. And yet the way he refers to them is really evocative. For example, in uh, Romans 8, when he writes, I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, Klaus, you are taking me right back to like sixth grade youth choir, <laughs> I think, at this point in church, and nothing can separate us from the love of God. I mean, I could sing the whole thing for you right now, but I don't know that our listeners are that interested. So <laughs> let's just talk about... <laughs> how all these this list kind of works so death life angels rulers things present things to come powers and then heights depths or anything created some of these things are really clear-cut like well 
Are angels clear-cut? We'll get into that later. While others, like heights, depths, rulers, are a little vague, to be sure. But whatever they all mean, they pose problems for the early members of the church, according to Paul, for any number of political or psychological reasons, but they will be overcome. He treats them all as kind of part of this same group of forces or things or entities that are against the early church, right? But Klaus, how do we know these things have anything to do with demons or Satans? It seems like a really long, vague, if poetic, list. Right. And I I think it's a great question. And because not everyone who studies these sources right now thinks that they all have that much to do with Satan, the sort of powers, heights, depths, all this stuff. Like, it's unclear whether they want that stuff to stand together with Satan, with apocalyptic theology. So I wanted to, like, get into a little bit more where some critical scholarly voices are coming from when it comes to trying to sort through and categorize all these things. I mean, powers and principalities sounds vaguely ominous. So even if they're not specifically demonic, they don't seem exactly benevolent either, right? Right. And what you just said, like, that roughly approximates the way one scholar, Emma Wasserman, wants us to understand Paul's idea of the powers. So, like, for Wasserman, the whole hype around Paul's apocalypticism is totally overblown. It's, like, basically just become, like, received wisdom, the standard the standard knowledge at this point that Paul's apocalyptic. And and I think it's like healthy to sort of push back on received wisdom uh, in, in this sort of example, because it can be a little bit, everything's predetermined. It's like, well, like Paul's an apocalypticist. So it's like, that's the way it's got to be. Right. That's the key to everything Paul, right? Once you know it. Right. So like I get a little paranoid, you know, without, you know, just I, it, it seems to me like that could be some major blinders if you just swallow that all the way. Okay, well, give me an example of how that works, Klaus. Show me, walk me through why that might be an overread. Sure. So, like, the other thing with the powers and principalities and the whole idea of demonology in Paul's letters is that all these other things sort of get attached onto it. So one of the things that gets grouped together with the powers and principalities is the idea of the elements or the elemental spirits, which sounds like a different thing than all those things or or demons. (laughs) So in his letter to the Galatians, Paul has some beef with members of the Galatian church who have become convinced that they need to adhere to uh, Jewish law in order to be adherence to the new gospel of Christ Jesus. Um, this is often the sort of situation that I think you've alluded to and, and is sort of clear in the Paul letters where other evangelists show up with a version of Christianity that they want to convince people to adopt and Paul's like but that's not what I taught you Um, so those people are like demonic and especially when it comes with an idea that you have to practice Jewish law right automatic demonic (laughs) label (laughs) or so yeah we'll we'll see what it means it's it's a little confusing and like for Paul like you know Jewish law is fine for Jews and Jews who accept the gospel but it can't be foisted on Gentile Christians and people see that as kind of part of the apocalypticism where it's like, just stay in your lane until you just keep doing your your thing and I'll keep doing my thing and you don't need to change your life in that way. But as Paul's like explaining this, he sort of makes this pretty startling leap where he associates the observance of Jewish law with pre-Christian pagan religious practices. And not only that, he makes their old observances out to be a form of servitude to some sort of being the elemental spirits. And I'll I'll just read what I'm talking about here. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to beings that by nature are not gods. Now, however, you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and beggarly elemental spirits? How can you want to be enslaved to them again? It's so crazy to me that he's associating this idea of like idolatrous worship with the observance of Jewish law. It's like, it's like, man, Paul with the bone saw all the time, just like, just sort of cutting off limbs. You know, it's like, man, did you have, it's like elective, elective surgery. Yeah, you know? it seems like those are such different things. I mean, wildly different things. This is quite a stretch. Yeah, yeah, I know. So like a lot of the scholarship on the demonic and Paul will like take a look at this this example of scripture and we'll see it as a, as a piece with the idea that Satan and his demons are masters of this age or the princes of this world. 
and thus have infiltrated all kinds of cultural, religious, and political institutions. Okay, but I sort of see what Wasserman's getting at. The Galatians passage doesn't really name them as such or link them explicitly to evil, right? Right. So, like, the question is, like, how are we supposed to understand them? For Wasserman, there is precedent in the Hebrew Bible and other Jewish texts for the gods of other nations acting as mid-level managers in Yahweh's bureaucratic administration. And the theory is that when Israel is especially wayward in its relationship with God, God will allow Israel to be ruled over not only by foreign empires, as we've discussed before, but also foreign gods. So we get something along these lines in a part of the book of Enoch called the Animal Apocalypse. Which just, I mean, can we say, what a great title for part of the book of Enoch. I know. I would watch that movie. Should we maybe just stop podcasting and create a movie (laughs) called the Animal Apocalypse? I feel like it would get some serious audience share just because it's 2020, right? Yeah, maybe if you get David Attenborough to, to narrate it, and you know, it'll, oh. it'll be like a BBC thing. A BBC yeah. thing. I it'll think, just be. Yeah, this is the right way to go. It'll just be like a description of what we're living through right now. <laughs> um, is, it's actually a reality show. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Right. Oh, too soon. Right. Okay. Yeah, I know. We can almost think of the uh, foreign deities in the way Wasserman's thinking about this as like international guest workers or contractors who are working for Yahweh, but whose contracts can be terminated at any time. So it's like their foreignness is played up, but their divine role is retained. And we see a sort of maybe a, a version of this in Isaiah 24 in the Hebrew Bible, where it reads that God is going to punish the hosts of heaven. And it sort of seems weird, you know, like, aren't those your people? But for Wasserman, this is an indication that some members of the divine administration are a bit on the fringes, sort of, they don't really belong there, and maybe they're messing up a lot. Okay, so I see how that seems strange, like, shouldn't God's team all be on God's team? But in a way, this isn't a new idea for us. It's the very heart of what we're dealing with across the episodes of the podcast, these two tendencies, on the one hand to see evil, the devil, demons, as all part of God's governance of the world, but on the other hand to see them as cosmic foes trying to destroy that world. The tradition tries to hold these two ideas in tension. Yeah, and I I think like that's what I find a little bit off about this interpretation. It's like just because the powers and principalities could be part of some divine bureaucratic system doesn't necessarily mean that they also can't be cosmic enemies. It reminds me of this whole like dynamic in which Leviathan and other dragons that we talked about earlier are at once a dangerous threat or pet goldfish, depending on the author, depending on the situation. Sometimes authors take these mythical characters and play up the threatening aspect. And sometimes they play up the inevitability of divine triumph. And John Levinson writes about this in his book. There's moments where you have to signal that it's all going to be okay and God's going to win. And then there's other times when you're trying to get coax God into action where you have to put the story in doubt a little bit. And so the thing I find most interesting is that maybe at least some of these powers or forces in the world, these powers and principalities or these elemental spirits aren't evil or like satanic per se in the way we think of satanic. They're just supporting cast and a big drama and they're like, they're kind of these bit parts. I mean, who says the elemental spirits need to be evil? Well, maybe Paul does. I mean, (laughs) here's one way to see them as the villains that they are, Klaus. In 1 Corinthians, Paul warns his readers about eating the food that that has been offered to idols, by which I take him to mean the deities of other religions in the ancient Mediterranean, right? Idols connect back to the elemental spirits because they represent religion being done wrong, the worship of beings who fraudulently claim divinity. Well, at least for Paul. Yeah, that, that sounds like pretty serious. Like, come on, get, get your religion right, guys. You would think, but actually Paul is pretty cavalier about these idols, these would-be gods. His main advice to the Corinthians is not to eat the food offered to the deities because other weaker Christians might get the wrong idea and start participating in pagan cults again. You know, don't be a stumbling block and slippery slope and all that. And this sounds a bit like what Wasserman is discussing. So this is Paul again. 
As to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists, and that there is no god but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one god. So here Paul is writing as if these other lesser gods do exist, and he even speaks of these gods in connection with lords or rulers, and it reminds me of something he says later in this letter that we mentioned above, that at the end of time Christ destroys quote, every ruler and every authority and power. Similar language here. Yeah, no, for sure. So it seems like there's like a connection between these two, the sort of half-assed gods who you are better off ignoring and not eating their food, and the beings that are moronically running things on planet Earth when Christ the Destroyer comes and fucks up things in the apocalypse. (laughs) Oh, apocalypticism. I, you know, it seems like that's right. So are they evil demons or sort of just these ineffectual nobodies? Sometimes Paul comes off as pretty blasé about them. Sometimes he names them as demons. But it's not clear what kind of force or associations demons would have in Paul's context. Remember that demons in ancient Greek literature mean a sort of supernatural intermediary between humanity and the divine. Socrates had a demon, remember? So it's not always negative. But when discussing the pure performance of Christian ritual, Paul admonishes his Corinthian readers to not participate in the Lord's Supper while being in the habit of eating the food sacrificed to idols, or, as he puts it, demons. He writes in 1 Corinthians, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be partners with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. This is one of the few places where Paul really discusses demons directly, and they seem to simply be a synonym for the elemental spirits who enslaved pre-Christian Mediterranean nations. And yet, we can get this sharp contrast between the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You gotta choose sides here. It seems super dualistic. Yeah, for sure. And that, like, the dualism is something that we associate with fighting the devil, struggling against the devil, etc. Even so, it still seems that things are a little ambiguous. Even in this First Corinthians passage, are, are demons, spirits, powers, principalities, just these middle beings, these sort of annoyances between humans and gods? Or are they like malevolent powers struggling in this eschatological struggle? Let's compare Wasserman's approach now to another doubter of the thoroughly apocalyptic Paul school, uh, who is Chris Forbes. Travis, can you just give us like a rundown of what Chris Forbes thinks? How about I give you way too many details and We'll just see how that goes instead. So basically, (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Forbes argues against the apocalyptic reading of the powers in Paul. And instead, he goes for this concept of allegory that comes from certain middle Platonist thinkers, such as Philo and Plutarch, to explain them. The Greek terms that Paul uses have a rather long history in Greek philosophy, but by the time Paul was writing, allegory was this convenient tool that allowed Greek philosophy to harmonize their fancy philosophical views with the somewhat embarrassing legends of the Greek gods, demigods, and heroes, misbehaving and fornicating all over the place, who, through allegory, could be explained as mere personifications of natural forces. Philo, on the other hand, used allegorical interpretation to explain away Judaism's thornier issues, chief of which was theodicy, or the problem of evil's existence in a world ruled by an all-powerful, all-benevolent god. An example of how Philo put this to work was in his interpretation of Genesis 18 through 19. So the biblical story goes that once upon a time, Abraham and Sarah were visited by three men whom they offered traditional ancient Near Eastern hospitality. The desert was a rough place to live in, and these customs ensured group survival, yada yada. The men announced that Sarah, in her 90s, would give birth to a son. She laughs, she gets in trouble for laughing. Meanwhile, in a town nearby called Sodom, people were being wicked. 
God was not pleased and decided to smite the town because, you know, Hebrew Bible smiting, all that. So Abraham debated with God about how many righteous people were the absolute minimum for God to decide to not smite the town. Then two angels go to Sodom to, and the story sort of goes on from there. So Philo's interpretation is like, hey, wait a minute, why are there only two angels that are going to Sodom? Weren't the three men that appeared in the beginning of the story that visited Abraham and Sarah actually angels? So aren't these two angels that visit Sodom supposed to be the same dudes who visit Abraham? And his answer is that the third dude was actually God. It was cool for God to go out and give this blessing to Abraham, he writes, but less cool for God to go around smiting. So the other two beings were clearly his, quote, powers acting as his ministers, end quote. So they were allegories, if you will, for God's powers, so that God would get out of being the direct cause of evil and could stay just the direct cause of the good. In a world gone crazy. <laughs> How does one God keep his hands clean? <laughs> we just keep coming back to this story. It's the same yeah. movie over and over, I feel. Yeah, same 90s trailer voice. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 uh, one of the central questions of the pod, right? Like, what extent is God responsible for evil in the world when he's letting his angelic underlings go and do the smiting? Hashtag angelic underlings. And here, instead of the devil per se, we have these sort of undersecretaries of defense, you know, nefarious characters. Similar pattern that we see in lots of other examples we've talked about in the pod, the idea of the necessity to explain evil and its existence, and the competing necessity to insulate God theologically from being the cause of evil, right? Philo also has a wide range of meanings for the powers of God. The phrase could simply mean like what God was capable of doing, all the way up to personal spiritual beings that God speaks to in a kind of heavenly council, like in Genesis, when God says, let us make, in reference to the creation of human beings, always an awkward passage for monotheists trying to argue that the creation of humanity was by the one God who is one. And this, Forbes will argue, is similar to Paul's range of uses for the term powers. Big range here. Yeah, yeah. So what about Plutarch? Uh, you, you mentioned him earlier. What's his deal and how does he relate to what Paul's doing? Oh, right. Yeah. So Plutarch wrote about Egyptian gods versus Greek gods and how they were, you know, basically the same thing. These various national or ethnic gods are actually various ways of describing powers or semi-abstract forces that are common to the human experience of the world. Wait, so like my tribal god is the same as your tribal god, so let's call the whole thing off. Yeah, it seems like that's the message here. But then Greece and Egypt weren't warring at the time. This would be a much harder move to pull off in tougher political times, <laughs> 21st century. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. So to review here, Forbes argues that the way Plutarch thought of the natural forces and the gods and the way that Philo interpreted Jewish scripture is similar to what Paul means when he talks about powers and principalities. That's it in a nutshell. Apocalypticism for Forbes is ultimately just not convincing as a way to explain the meaning of the various powers that Paul talks about. Forbes wants to say instead that Paul is a bit of an amateur Greek philosopher, weaving everything from the elemental forces to the allegorical powers to the personal spiritual entities like angels and demons and God himself into a relatively consistent cosmology. I just don't know... To what extent I buy this argument? What's your take, Klaus? I think I th um, it's pretty similar to my reaction to the Wasserman, where I feel like the middle Plotinistic context is interesting and invites a lot of parallels, but it's not decisive in terms of deactivating an apocalyptic reading of it. It, se it seems just as likely to me that Paul could be steeped in middle Plotinist philosophy, could be using it and its metaphors and images and concepts for an apocalyptic Jewish use. And I, I just don't see how that isn't on the table still. It's also like Paul doesn't really go through the trouble to systematize the powers, the elements, the archons, whatever, the, in the way that Forbes, Forbes is reconstructing that. But like Paul seems to care a lot less about that than, than Forbes does himself. <laughs> That's right. But you know, one of the things as I think about it, that Paul might be accomplishing rhetorically is not just the force of the amalgamation of the list that says there's a lot against us, 
but nothing can separate us from the love of God or whatever. But actually, look at all these different kinds of things that are against us. And in that sense, while he doesn't fill them out for us and we can't decide for certain that allegory in the middle plot in a sense is going to explain exactly what the forces are, we still get a sense that there are diverse forces at work against us in various ways, cosmological, apocalyptic included. So I guess I'm with you on the, this doesn't preclude apocalypticism, certainly, but I am starting to develop a slightly more nuanced view of where I think that list in Romans is going. So that's something at least. So why don't we chat a little bit about the most obvious allegories that I think most scholars accept as allegories in Paul's letters, and those are sin and death. What do you make of those moments and how might they be important as we think more broadly about Paul's concepts of evil? Yeah, it's interesting when you said, I think with the Forbes, that the allegorical personifications and sin and death are located with the elements and are sort of thereby less powerful than some of the more personified angelic and demonic forces. To me, maybe maybe it's an accident of my own training, but it seems to me that Paul's like really most exercised or excited by sin and death, especially in Romans, things that he will often personify in these discussions. And they seem like they carry a lot more weight than I think that maybe even Forbes is giving them here. Uh, so like in the one Corinthians passage, after all this, the sub-godlings have been crushed underfoot, death itself was put to death, which is you know, kind of weird. <laughs> you know, it, if death isn't such a big deal, it's sort of weird to leave the best for last then. I don't know. Mm. That gets back to his whole temporality though, right? That moment that he's supposedly living in, there's a weirdness to how Paul sees his moment in, in time that it's both Christ's death and resurrection have accomplished that final stroke, but also haven't. It's all proleptic for him. No, for sure. For sure. Um, and I think that makes sense. But it's still like, it seems like death has a certain kind of pride of place in the, in the Corinthians passage. And, and that's, of course, because he's trying to tell people about what's going to happen with their bodies in the eschaton. But right. yeah, but it still seems like it's important to me. But like sin is also like a pretty big deal in Christian theology. Uh, in case you hadn't noticed. Yeah. Um, and it seems like to me much more potent in Paul's conception of these obstacles and these cosmological, demonological obstacles to be overcome. So like in, in Romans 7, Paul describes sin as possessing his body, or maybe your body as the reader, inhabiting it, forcing him to do things he hates in a state of slavery until Christ liberates him. So sin appears as like not merely a mistake or your your bad judgment, but like as So, sin and death appear as personifications or allegories in Paul's letters. Sort of how we talked about them being that way in Milton's Paradise Lost, right? Yeah, I wonder where he got that idea. Hmm, who knows? Okay, but there's still a lot of weird things we don't have settled yet. Where are the demons, for example? Why do we think of these powers and principalities as demons? Well, some of the scholarship I've read groups sin and death together with the powers and principalities, and as we were discussing with Forbes, with the, the elements. So if you want to follow that categorization, then they do sort of take on an evil tint. And there's also that part from Ephesians 6 that we mentioned. Pseudo-Paul, or if you're feeling really polite, we could say Deutero-Paul. Uh, the devil stands at the head of the list when he starts going off about spiritual powers of evil in heavenly places. So it looks like one of Paul's followers draws the connection between the devil, evil powers, and these godling middle manager types. But should we think of that as something the authentic Paul would go in for or no? It's hard to say, right? I mean, these writings that we do have that we think of as being authentically written by Paul, they respond to specific situations. They're, they're occasional. They're not systematic. So we don't get the full treatment of Paul's demonology if he would have cared to write such a thing. So just because we don't see Paul making this exact move in the authentic letters doesn't mean he didn't in other places. We, we just don't know. 
Right. And even if these lower level deities pale in comparison to God or Christ, they are formidable and they are in charge of a world that is pretty menacing. It's like the spiritual powers of evil, the rulers have taken over running the show on earth and humanity is just stuck in the matrix, blissfully unaware of how bad things really are. Paul writes about how messed up our thought processes have become as a result of our unwillingness to recognize God. So that's how we get idolatry and then sexual perversion, the infamous Paul hates gays verses in Romans 1. Well, I should say, Paul hates gay sex, not gay people, since gay people weren't really a thing yet. Anyway. And some scholars see our cognitive lag as a result of sin as playing into the power structure of the powers and principalities that are secretly running the show. Can I just like stop a moment and say that I see some real overlap to current discourses, specifically conspiracy theories that are really a a global phenomenon right now? That seems like an important thing to say something about. Yes. <laughs> Why don't you go for it? One in particular, which I won't bother to name, uh, as most of our listeners like sort of know by now, claims that those in the highest positions of power in the Democratic Party and Hollywood are Satan-worshipping child sex traffickers. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to say that really old Christian ideas are the reason we have these conspiracy theories today, but it makes sense to me that many right-wing-leaning Christians are able to recognize and adapt these conspiracy theories into their worldview because they're so Bible-soaked and there are some family resemblances between them. Hmm. Yeah, I can see that. This whole hidden reality that's lurking beneath the surface and this tendency to see whole groups of people as evil or as conspiring together against you with, in conjunction with spiritual forces that are behind those human agents Yeah, that does sound kind of familiar. And the whole thing where Paul's seemingly dismissive of these powers, they're these clownish mini-bosses, and yet they're also deserving of a final ass-kicking from the Messiah. That sort of dissonance rings true with today's politics as well. Political opponents are at once evil and also laughable clowns. Yeah, no, for sure. I want to also talk about another kind of being that we've touched on a few times that is related to questions of the, the demonic and the devil, and that's that's angels. And they play a sort of ambiguous role in Paul's letters. There are references that seem positive, there's some that seem neutral, there's some that seem negative. And we've dealt with angel ambiguity before. Remember the whole watcher situation with horny angels ruining everything on earth? It's really hard to forget that one. So... <laughs> It's a story that once you've heard it, it just kind of doesn't leave your memory. You can't unhear that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well said. So we do know about it. And so did some of the writers of the New Testament with references to the Watchers coming up, for example, in Jude and in 2 Peter. But Paul didn't write any of those. So does he have any connection to the Watchers myth? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Uh, The place to look is in uh, 1 Corinthians 11.10. This is one of these infamous Pauline passages that plays into really misogynistic gender roles. Paul reminds his readers that worship must take place in an orderly fashion. This is like a recurring theme in Corinthians. And this orderly fashion must reflect gender hierarchy. Of course, of course, right? So God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man. Yes, manly men. And the husband is the head of his wife. So they're, they're all like standing on each other's heads. Like, I, I don't know. It's, it's a like, really weird image. Like the head of the head of that. Like what does all of that add up to? I, it seems a little bit horrifying, actually. I don't know. Like a multi-headed monster. But anyway, go on. Yeah, yeah. So as a result of these, this, this several-headed monster, married women <laughs> must cover their heads to express this proper power relationship of male headship. Wait a minute. Has anyone ever argued that they need to cover their husbands up? Yeah, I mean... Because if their husbands... I mean, just go with me for a second. If the head of the wife is her husband, then shouldn't she just cover up her husband? And, can, like, how would Christianity have developed if all of the men had to be covered? That, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. I'm yeah. done now. Please continue. <laughs> with, please continue with the actual serious discussion. <laughs> I mean... I know, it's like a big what if. So 
we see this idea that women are supposed to cover their heads playing out in all kinds of contemporary Christian contexts. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not just like a back in the olden days kind of thing. As if this rather convoluted theory for a certain form of female modesty isn't enough, Paul also throws in this random tidbit that the married women need to cover themselves, quote, because of the angels. Okay, this is actually my favorite part. I'm really excited that we get to talk about this. What is going on there? He just sticks it in there and moves on. Okay, super strange. So this is a reference to the watchers, maybe? If married women worshiping in the early church don't cover their heads and the angels are above, then we're going to get a whole redux edition of the watchers falling out of the heavens to try to seduce these saucy church matrons. That's one theory. Okay, I love that theory. It's really weird, and I love it. (laughs) Like, lusty angels on high. (laughs) And your hair is what kind of draws them in. (laughs) Well, that's one theory. And it's not just uh, contemporary Bible scholars who think this. Tertullian, one of the first major theologians in Latin Christianity, held this view about Paul with reference to the Watchersmith. He just thought that it was clear Paul was talking about the Watchers. This view also builds on a part of the testimony of the 12 patriarchs, another sort of work of uh, pseudopigrapha from late antiquity, um, and a part of it, the testimony of Reuben, one of the sons of Jacob from the book of Genesis, really goes into this where Reuben blames that early generation of women, he blames them hmm. for seducing the watcher angels and for all fornication in general. So there's, there's a lot of victim blaming going on here that in order to make this assumption about what Paul is doing in this throwaway verse about because of the angels. Clearly. But what I don't get is why Paul would be worried about a repetition of this event. Didn't the watchers already fall, have their giant children, and then see those children murdered and turn into evil ghost demons? Haven't we just been through this enough? Isn't it over? One theory I've seen connects back to the apocalyptic periodization of history. Paul understands himself to be entering into a new stage, but they were sort of at this in-between moment, a kind of historical limbo, maybe like the eye of the apocalyptic storm or something. And there's the idea that this kind of moment is vulnerable to catastrophes and repetitions of past catastrophes, like the fall of the watchers. Like they're in this kind of uh, like sensitive moment where everything's unstable. Um, this particular fear may have been augmented by an idea we see in the Dead Sea Scrolls in the documents that deal with liturgy and ritual. And it seems like the Essenes thought that angels were actually present and participating in their worship services. And this was a reason to be really concerned about modesty. Of course, we don't know if Paul thought that same thing, but if it's an idea that extended beyond Qumran, it might inform this kind of, I don't know, misogynistic anxiety about how to do pure worship. Mm-hmm. Well, beyond all that, angels are ambiguous because they're fallible. And as we've seen with the Watchers, they can become evil. It's angels who help transmit the law to Moses, according to Paul. And so this links them to an older, outdated way of interacting with God, again, according to Paul. Satan has his angels in Paul's mind. He can even appear as an angel of light to fool wayward Christians. It doesn't seem like an accident that Paul uses the example of a hypothetical angel who would arrive with a different gospel than the one Paul preaches. Let that angel be cursed to hell, right? Because, you know, Paul deals really seriously with his enemies, at least rhetorically. He's not trifling trifling with them there. Do not cross her, okay? (laughs) So I can sort of see how this does connect with the powers and principalities. The angels are these middle-level beings who can potentially mess things up. Maybe they're a little bit less, you know, inclined to do that than powers and principalities, but they're powerful, fallible, and Paul seems wary of the way they can just complicate things, especially for new converts who don't know what they're doing. So let's step back for a second and consider Paul's take on the devil, demons, and evil in general. My first question is, does Paul even care all that much about the devil or demons? What do you think, Klaus? I think, yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think what I would say first is that Paul's demonic seems to be pretty distant from our demonic. Like this isn't the exorcist. We, we aren't even sure that for Paul, 
Satan is the king of the demons or like what Satan's relationship is to these beings. Yeah, got it. We're left to kind of piece together a picture of what Paul had in mind. Okay, so do you think we could helpfully compare Paul's Satan to some of the other versions of Satan we've talked about in earlier episodes as a way to kind of get more of a handle on what his Satan was like? Yeah, I think I think there's there's moments where it seems like Paul's Satan doesn't seem terribly different than the Satan in the book of Job, where it's like sort of this angelic heavenly court functionary who's just sort of there to mess with people. Mm, mm-hmm. One of the things we talked about our, our first episode was about temptation. Do we see Satan working as a tempter? Because that's, that's a bit different than the Job-Satan character. Yeah, I think... We have at least one example of that from 1 Corinthians 7. It's this whole discussion, remember, about how some of the folks in Corinth were all proud of themselves because they were abstaining from sex. And Paul seemed, like, cool with that. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm also, you know, celibate. I wish everyone could be like me. But here's the deal. Some of you aren't up to it. And it's actually a temptation from Satan that if you are to take up the celibacy, if you're not, you know, called to it if you're actually too weak and you should go ahead and just get married so that you will avoid sexual fornication and so we at least have this one example where there's this satan is tempter theme that comes up for him yeah do you think there are other places where we see similar satans to paul's satan i was going to say that thing you were saying about satan as tempter and being trying to be too rigorous in first corinthians reminds me of First Timothy, mm-hmm. where the author refers to this sort of temptation to engage in a lifestyle that is seemingly rigorous and holier than thou as the doctrine of demons. So sort of phrased a little bit differently. But yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, in terms of other texts that we've seen that compare, I think uh, the character of uh, Mastema from Jubilees is similar to the sort of tempting angel and, and Job, Job's Satan where we have like this character who's there to punish people for their sins and is there to put people through these tests of faith. That seems not dissimilar to what Paul's talking about when he's talking about Satan. Like you're dealing with this this force that's there to put you in really awkward positions or maybe mess things up or cause misfortune. That that seems pretty similar. Yeah, no, I agree. I'm wondering now, we've talked a little bit about Satan Let's move to demons just for a second. Do you think there's any kind of robust demonology, per se, in Paul's letters or the pseudepigrapha, maybe? It's it's funny because we, we've talked about the places where demons come up, but they don't, they're not really named as such very often. It makes sense why scholars are more interested in powers and principalities and these cosmic elements. Like, those feature at least a little bit more often. Demons... For, you know that this word exists in in Greek. It's not as if it's a translation issue. You know he had that word and he doesn't use it very often. So I don't think that we really get a fully fleshed out demonology. Um, even if we want to talk about the powers and principalities and the Satan references, it's like it, it, there's a lot there, but it's not really systematized. And we've gone through that before. But even so, it's he, it doesn't have the same sort of urgency as other topics. Absolutely. Yeah. You've got the doctrine of demons that comes up from 1 Timothy 4 and 1 Corinthians 10, but really there's no sense of defining what a demon is. I absolutely agree. So let's move now to what you think maybe Paul's legacy might be when it comes to understanding the devil, maybe demonology or evil in general even. Yeah. I mean, Paul's importance can't be overstated basically for the history of Christianity. I mean, he, we get, we sort of joke that he's like, he sort of invented it. Um, and it's sort of telling then that the devil isn't a really huge dominating presence in his letters from what we can tell. I mean, it's there. Uh, but again, I don't think it really has the same sort of urgency as other features of the letters. So this for me brings up the question, does the system that Paul creates in these letters require more out of the devil and demons than what he sketches out. In other words, is there some systematic gap or hole that he leaves that others who come after him rush to fill in, in your opinion? What do you think of that? Well, I think it's telling that some of the most uh, signature 
Pauline statements about the powers and principalities and Satan come in the pseudopigrapha in Ephesians or, or like we think of as deuterocanonical letters, like letters that, that could have been written by him, but probably weren't. Yeah. Um, and so you see it articulated more fully in those letters, like in Colossians or, or Ephesians. Um, and to me, that's it's interesting because it, it sort of suggests that a lot of what they say, they do draw on phrases that he uses, but they kind of give it a little bit more oomph. Um, they, they sort of package it a little bit more dramatically. Hmm. And I, I th- what I think is interesting about that is they, like, we might say, like, oh, we look at the authentic Pauline letters and, oh, there's, like, a way in which the devil isn't that big a deal. And then you, but but yet there's some, the, 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 the there are possibilities for him there. And the, the people who followed Paul are like, let's use these possibilities. Like, we got some, there's some options here. This is a great story. That's that's sort of my impression. Uh, yeah. And there's also the sense of something we talked about in a previous episode about demonization. Like, maybe if I can flip it back to you, like, is there a way in which Paul's way of dealing with other gods might play into demonization? Sure. Yeah. I think we are just a few steps away from where Justin Martyr will take this. So Paul when he's talking about idolatry in particular and sort of eating food that we talked about a bit earlier, you know, he is laying the groundwork for what I think Justin Martyr will pick up, that other gods are just demons. And that theme runs through for the next several centuries and beyond. Augustine picks it up. It's so important in thinking about even relations in the Americas, how Catholics in particular, but Protestants as well, see Native peoples and their gods. So again, stuff that we have talked about a little bit in some of the other episodes. So yeah, I see kind of laying the groundwork. There's a little bit in Paul. It's not developed in the way that we will see later. Certainly any of these concepts, the devil, demonization, demons, none of that is where we will see it in its later forms. Yeah, like they're sort of repackaging these elements. These elements are there whether they're part of an apocalyptic system or just part of this way of thinking about lesser deities or foreign deities in, in Hebrew Bible culture, or whether they're part of some middle plotinist way of thinking about cosmology, they're there. And yet the later, the later writers, the, the next generation of writers give it more of a pointed aspect that sort of seems more akin to what we think of, the, of as the demonic than I think even what Paul thinks of as the demonic. I think that's right. I think he spend, he spills so much ink on the concept of sin and relatively much less on these other concepts of the devil and demons, etc. And I think these other folks find the groundwork to connect the dots, you know, leaning more into Satan as tempter, leaning more into demons as other gods, etc. Okay, so next time, join us for discussion on the devil in Johannine literature. Thanks for listening. See you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.